going to read the Bible now. And today's Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, from the second part of verse 31 to the end of chapter 13. One Corinthians chapter 12, second part of 31. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Thank you, Hannah, and uh, thank you, Graham. Morning, everyone. It's uh, good to see you all. It's great to be with you once again. Over at uh, Riverbank, we've recently uh, completed a, a sermon series which we called One Body, Everybody. It was a series that focused on the church and what God intends for his church to be. Uh, we started off with a couple of sermons on 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the one just before this passage that we're looking at today. And uh, in that well-known chapter, we were reminded of two incredibly significant truths. Chapter 12 tells us, first of all, that the church is not a human organisation with human priorities. It is, in fact, the body of Christ, it is a group of people who share the, the deepest spiritual experience of faith in Jesus and of salvation by his blood and who are called and bound together by the Lord himself. He has placed every single one of us here for a reason and every single person is needed and necessary. But then secondly, that chapter also tells us that the Lord has equipped every single one of us with spiritual gifts. 
abilities that he has given to us in order to contribute to the health of the whole church, to strengthen each other's faith in Jesus, and to share the good news with the lost. Our gifts are all different, and they're all of vital importance. But as we reach chapter 13, what's happening is we're actually, we're actually now taking a step back and we're looking behind the scenes. We're thinking about the attitude that lies behind all of these other activities, the manner in which we use our spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. We're asking, what's the motivation that really drives us when we serve the Lord? Or, to put it in even more practical terms, we're thinking to ourselves, why exactly is it that I teach in a children's or a, or a youth ministry? Or why do I lead a growth group? Why do I participate in the music team? Or give money in order to support missionaries? Why exactly do I get involved in the activities of my church? Why do I share the gospel with my neighbour? Why do I help the needy or visit the sick and the lonely? We could, of course, assume that all of these things are always done with the purest of motives. And we certainly want to portray that about ourselves, don't we? But you and I, we both know that when we look deep into our own hearts, we soon realise, don't we, that it's, it's not always true. For friends, isn't it possible to serve the Lord because, because that's what we've always done? It's our tradition, our duty, our hobby, even our job. Isn't it possible to serve the Lord because, well, because if we don't, then no one else is going to do it, are they? We say, well, try everyone else first, and if you can't find anyone, well, then I guess it's up to me. Isn't it possible to serve the Lord because we want to meet the expectations of other people, maybe our parents or our spouse or our friends or, or our leaders? Isn't it possible to serve the Lord because it relieves our feelings of guilt? We think that God will accept us so long as we do enough and meet some kind of standard. Friends, isn't it possible to serve the Lord because, well, because if we get in and commit to a comfortable task, well, then we'll have a good excuse not to do anything else. Isn't it possible to serve the Lord because we feel that we might get something out of it for ourselves? Satisfaction, friendships, favours in return. Friends, isn't it possible to serve the Lord because that way, well, then we can run things properly with the way we want to, and so we can satisfy our desire for power and control. And friends, isn't it possible to serve the Lord because we long to be seen and admired, to feel important and receive encouragement and attention? I guess the church could operate quite efficiently with these kinds of things as their basis, and I'm sure that there are churches that do. But I ask you this morning, is it good? Is it right? Is it best? 
Well, having just spoken about using spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, the Apostle Paul says something very important in the last words of chapter 12. He says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Paul knew that people could have lesser motives for serving, that he himself could have lesser motives for serving, that we here at the branch could have lesser motives for serving. And so he shows us instead the most excellent way. And that way can be summed up in just a single word, love. Love is the reason that should lie behind all that we do. Love is the manner in which we should speak and serve and minister. Love is the motivation that should drive us to seek each other's spiritual good. But unfortunately, the English language forces us to define this more carefully. Because in English, this word love can mean so many different things. It can mean something very flippant. Oh, I love your shoes. It can mean something very passive. I love you, for I have such nice feelings about you but don't ever expect me to do anything for you. It can mean something very conditional. I love you so long as I find you attractive and lovable. It can mean something very selfish. I love you, but only really because you satisfy my needs and my desires. And it can mean something very temporary. I love you for now, but later on I may not love you anymore. These worldly ideas are so unhelpful as we try to understand the true biblical concept of love. For we need to know what Paul really means here in this passage. And so I'd like to share an excellent definition from Christian author Sam Storms. He says that in the Bible, love is a deep affection for, a delight in, and a commitment to act for the welfare of another without regard for their loveliness that often comes at great sacrifice to oneself. Or again, he says, love is the overflow of our delight in God that joyfully cherishes and seeks the best interests of others regardless of the cost to oneself. That, my friends, is the kind of love that should motivate us to serve our God. And in our passage today, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul has three important lessons for us about what that really means. And the first lesson is the absolute supremacy of love. Listen again to verses 1 to 3. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So what's Paul saying? He's referring back to, to some of the spiritual gifts that he'd mentioned in the previous chapter. And he says to us, just imagine for a moment that I had some of these gifts. 
Imagine if I could speak in tongues, spreading the gospel in different languages. Imagine if I had the gift of prophecy, declaring God's message to convict the lost and to edify the saved. And if I had a strong faith encouraging others in their walk with the Lord. And imagine if I gave money to the poor, helping those less fortunate and endured hardship, suffering for the sake of the kingdom. But he says more than that, doesn't he? He says, imagine if I had these gifts to their, to their absolute fullest extent, more than anyone else. What if I didn't just speak in tongues, but in all the tongues of men and of angels, and didn't just prophesy, but did so fathoming all mysteries and all knowledge, and not just have faith, but a faith that can move mountains, and not just giving to the poor, but giving everything I possess, and not just suffering hardship, but so much hardship that I could boast about it. What an amazing person he would be. What an awesome example. What a great blessing to the church. But Paul says, just imagine if I did all of this, serving God more than any of you, more than all of you put together, but yet I did not have love. Well, the more pragmatic might say, so what? What's it matter? So long as the message and the ministry and the money are good and the results are positive, then who cares about the attitude? Well, Paul tells us that God cares and he cares very, very much. He says, if I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, a useless, meaningless noise. If I don't have love, I am nothing of no value whatsoever. If I don't have love, he says, I gain nothing. It would be all just a, a total waste of time. And notice that he doesn't just say that his message would be a resounding gong, but that he himself would be a resounding gong. Doesn't just say his prophecy or his faith would be nothing, but he himself would be nothing. Doesn't just say his giving or his suffering would gain nothing but he himself would gain nothing. My friends, it doesn't matter who we are or what we do, no matter how great and wonderful, how impressive or exciting, how successful or effective, if we serve God without love, well, then there's really no point. We may as well not bother, for our efforts and even ourselves would be worthless in God's sight. You see, my friends, it'd be better for a 90-year-old widow to quietly pray for God's work in love than for a dynamic preacher to preach the most amazing sermon without it. It'd be better for a child to give one dollar out of their pocket money in love than for a successful businessman to give a million dollars without it. It'd be better for a new Christian to share the gospel with one friend in love than for a lifelong churchgoer to minister all of their days without it. And that's very sobering, isn't it? Because we've all served God with wrong motives, haven't we? We've all helped without really loving those we were helping. 
given without really loving those we were giving for, led without really loving those we were leading. And that's why we should ponder these words from 1 John chapter 3. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Friends, love is not an optional extra, something that some believers have but others don't. It is, in fact, a natural response to the love first shown to us by our God. It's at the very heart of serving him and its absence cannot be flimsily excused. But as we consider Paul's words, let's also flip them around. Imagine for a moment what the church would be like if every single one of us was serving God out of selfless love. Imagine if we deeply loved each other in every ministry, in every act of service, in every conversation. Imagine if we <clears throat> deeply loved every person in this body of Christ and every single soul who God put across our path. <clears throat> Excuse me. Surely, surely that would be truly amazing, wonderful, beautiful. Surely that would be the basis of a truly healthy church as every member uses their gifts, not driven by selfish ambition, but by a genuine care and affection for each other. Surely, my friends, that would be the most excellent way. Friends, in these verses, Paul shows us the absolute supremacy of love. But now you might be wondering to yourself, but what does that really look like for me? How would I display such love in my life and in my ministry? How would it actually change my approach? Well, that brings us to our second point, which is the essential character of love. And we find that in verses 4 to 7. And here in these verses, Paul tells us no less than 15 things which help us to understand what love really is. And they're not really complicated, but yet they are deeply profound. So instead of explaining them further and, and adding complication that's not needed today, I simply want to invite you to take some time to dwell on each of these words and phrases. And as we do that, I want to urge us to apply them to ourselves, not to others, to yourself. Consider how the Lord would want you to respond in the way you serve, in the way you treat others in this church, in the way you treat others in your life, and ask the Holy Spirit to work in you and to make this the true attitude of your heart. My friends, the Lord says to us, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. 
It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. But it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Isn't this exactly the kind of love that our Lord Jesus has lavished upon us? And isn't this exactly the kind of love that, that we as redeemed and transformed people should now find living in our own hearts and shining out in our own lives? And so let's ask the Lord to forgive our many failings and to take hold of us and to change us and to renew us in his own image. Let's ask the Lord to help us to truly embrace the essential character of love. But there's one more thing that Paul teaches us in this chapter. He's shown us the absolute supremacy of love. He's shown us the essential character of love. But finally, there is the enduring relevance of love. And this is in verses 8 to 13. Now, we don't have time to go into every detail, but let me briefly outline Paul's argument. What he's doing is he's reminding us that spiritual gifts, well, they're actually temporary. Now, don't get me wrong, he's not saying they're unnecessary or they're unimportant, quite the opposite. But what he is saying is that spiritual gifts are given to us for this current age. For we still live, don't we, in a sinful world where so many don't know the gospel and where we ourselves have so much to learn. We are still living, aren't we, in separation from God. But yet a time is coming when that will no longer be the case and then spiritual gifts will be obsolete. He says, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Paul's point is that, that when our Lord Jesus returns, all these things will pass away. We'll no longer need them, for we will see God in all of his glory. Our knowledge will be complete. There'll no longer be any struggle or any pain, or any need. But yet love, he says, will continue. It will never pass away. And that's why he opens this final section saying, love never fails. 
And he closes it by saying, and now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Spiritual gifts will cease, but yet the virtue that lies behind them will not. For love is at the very heart of the Christian faith and the very heart of eternal life and the very heart of God himself. For surely that's what heaven will be. It will be a place when we will finally experience the perfect and unhindered love of God and of all his people. And so what that reminds us is that, is that when we exhibit this kind of love, not perfectly, but yet genuinely in our lives today and here in our church, that we're actually experiencing a small taste of heaven on earth. And doesn't that help us to understand why this is so important? When we truly love one another, then we're actually experiencing the very beginnings of eternal life. And so, my friends, we should never forget the enduring relevance of love. So, my sisters and my brothers in Christ, as we near the end, I'd like to ask you to to just take a minute to, to think about the real and the regular ways that you serve your Lord. Are you a leader, a teacher, a helper? Are you called to evangelise unbelievers or to encourage believers? Are your gifts in administration or in giving, technology, prayer, mercy or hospitality? Do you serve up front or do you serve behind the scenes? Do you serve in organised ministry or in daily life? And as you're thinking about this, consider for a moment why you do the things that you do. What really drives you to serve? Is it done out of love? Or perhaps you've discovered, just as I have, that, that this is not always the case. For we're so utterly human and we and we're constantly tempted to do good things for wrong reasons. But you know, when we serve with selfish motives, well, well, that's when we resist using our gifts, don't we? We focus too much on our own needs and our own desires and, and far too little on our Lord and his calling on our life. We're quick to limit our efforts and quick to say no. And when we serve with selfish motives, that's also when using our gifts becomes hard and frustrating. We find so little joy and pleasure in the tasks that we do. We become annoyed and downhearted and we're just so tempted to, to give up and to throw in the towel. So what's the solution? Well, it's not to stop serving but rather to radically reassess the reasons why we do. And in this passage, we've been told in no uncertain terms that the, the right reason is love. It all begins with our love for the Lord. If we truly know and, and cherish in our hearts what he has done for us, the way he has loved us first, despite our own unworthiness, at such great sacrifice to himself, so that we can be abundantly and eternally blessed, then, then surely the rest will follow. His love compels us to love humanity, 
People made in the image of God, but yet heading to a godless eternity if they will not turn to Jesus Christ. Surely our own salvation drives us to want others to be saved, to be forgiven, to know the Lord and to experience his peace and his purpose and his hope. And surely that will also lead us to love each other in the church as well, to recognise that that we are the gathering of those who are eternally saved. We will treasure this precious bond which we share and increase in heartfelt affection for each other as we rejoice with those who rejoice, as we mourn with those who mourn, and as we long more than anything else for each other's spiritual and eternal well-being. Loving the Lord loving the lost, loving each other. That's our calling. But may it be more than just words. May it be the deep-seated desire of our hearts and of our lives. My friends, let's ask the Lord to fill us with his love and may that truly overflow into all the ways that we serve him. Let's be willing to to assess our own attitudes and motivations. And when we realise that they are self-focused, let's ask the Lord to refocus us once again. And let us truly strive here at the branch to learn his most excellent way. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the the wonder of your salvation and for calling us to be the body of Christ. And Father, we want to thank you for equipping us, every single one of us, with gifts from your Holy Spirit that we can serve you together. But Lord God Almighty, you have reminded us today that when we serve, we also need to consider the reasons why we do. And Lord, we have to confess before you that that all too often we have served with selfish motives. And so we seek your forgiveness. Lord, please wash away the stain of our own relentless self-centeredness and release us from its power. And Lord, we pray, please convict us by the message of your word this day. Help us to truly know what it means to to use our gifts to build up the body of Christ in love. Please fill us with an even deeper understanding of the love that you have first lavished on us and fill us with an even deeper affection and care for the lost and for each other. Lord, work in each of us by your Holy Spirit and help us to truly seek the welfare of others and most of all, their spiritual welfare, even when it comes at great sacrifice to ourselves. Lord, as we serve you in the days ahead, please cause us to stop and to ask ourselves, am I doing this out of love or for some lesser reason? And as we do that, may these things grow within us more and more and more. Lord, may we grow as a whole church seeking to honour you, not just in our actions, but the attitudes behind them. Give us pure hearts and a deep longing for the blessing of others in every circumstance. And Lord, may the world truly know that we are Christians 
by our love. Amen.